Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The chapter began with a conflict over the Sabbath in verses 1 through 21. You'll remember it continued with a conflict over Satan in verses 22 through 37. Now the religious leaders once again clash and collide with Jesus over the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus. The religious leaders ask for a sign. Now remember, Jesus had performed many miracles at this point in his ministry. In John's gospel, we're given a window into those miracles in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, where it says, Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. These things, it says, Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Now remember what a sign is. A sign is an unusual act with special meaning. So part of the point and the irony of what's going on is that the religious leaders are going to be asking for a sign from Jesus after they've already accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Part of the challenge that Jesus has is the same challenge that we experience almost every single day. How do we present belief in an age of unbelief? Particularly to a generation that says... Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. Remember, we live in a world where they believe that seeing is believing. And Jesus is going to present that it's not true. It isn't seeing that causes believing. It's believing that gives us the opportunity to see. We don't simply challenge agnosticism and skepticism and atheism. We don't simply condemn sin. But we call God's people to believe God's message and God's Messiah. It's going to be impossible to present belief in an age of unbelief if you yourself don't believe the message. And again, I'm not talking about just simply acknowledging the reality of the truth behind the gospel message. I'm talking about living your lives as if it's true. One popular songwriter and singer sang, I want to live like Jesus is, a, is for real. We don't simply cave into the dark secular society, but we present the light of a of biblical revelation. It makes perfect sense, again, that we live in a world that denies the lordship of Jesus, but how can the church deny the lordship of Jesus? And remain the church. How can the believer deny what Jesus is saying about himself? 
Over 200 years ago, John Wesley wrote, making an open stand against all ungodliness and unrighteousness which overspreads our land as a flood is one of the noblest ways of confessing Christ in the face of the enemies. Can you imagine he said that over 200 years ago to his generation? And I think it's time that we say that again. Live your lives so that people marvel at what Jesus has done in your life. But look at the religious leader's request for a sign in verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Once again, think about the context of the request. <clears throat> the religious leaders have been exposed. Jesus has rebuked them. He exposes them, he rebukes them, but they make yet another demand. They ask for a sign. Now, in one sense, it might be argued that a miracle is different from a sign. A miracle is performed on earth by earthlings. And in the ancient world, a sign was something that took place in the heavens. It was celestial, something that had to do with its origin in heaven. And so I'm going to suggest to you that in part, they're asking for some visible manifestation up in the sky, a sign. Now remember who the Pharisees are. These are the descendants of those who returned from Babylon and Jerusalem during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are Jewish people who are trying to hold on to Judaism and the promises of God and the word of God after the temple is destroyed and judgment has come. They're a group who cling to the word of God, but they're also a group that cling to the traditions of the rabbis. But we're also introduced, at least for the first time, in the Gospel of Matthew to a group of people called the scribes. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees. In order to be called a scribe in the first century, in the, in the time of Jesus, you had to have been at least 35 years of age. You had to have demonstrated a mastery of the Hebrew Scriptures. But not only did you have to be competent in the Hebrew scriptures, you also had to know and be aware of and understand the rabbinic traditions and the oral traditions. In that culture and society, the scribes were considered the Bible teachers, the lawyers, the interpreters of the law. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, often the word miracle and the word sign are used interchangeably. The proof that they seek isn't so much the existence of God, but rather to validate the claims of Christ. They were in effect demanding that Jesus prove his claims to be God's Messiah, but remember what they've already witnessed. And I brought this up to you. They've already seen him heal the sick. They've already seen him deliver the demon-possessed. No matter how dramatic, no matter how persistent, no matter how prolific the miracle, these religious leaders aren't believing. Later in chapter 16, verse 1, the religious leaders ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. What will it take for them to believe? What, in effect, are they asking? Are they asking Jesus to plunge the world into darkness? Are they saying, make the earth stop spinning? Are they saying, let us see stars dance in heaven? Let's watch Orion, um, let's watch Ursa Major, or let's watch the stars gather and form a message and write in the Hebrew language that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe some of you have even had that kind of statement. Lord, show me what you want. Just write it out in the sky so that I can see it clearly. Are they asking Jesus to make the stars dance? Maybe they want Jesus to turn the moon into blood in order to fulfill Joel's prophecy in chapter 2. Verse 31, the truth may be that the religious leaders expect no such sign. 
his reluctance or failure from their perspective to do a sign is in order in part to discredit him in the eyes of the onlookers. They ask for a sign not so much in order to believe, but because they don't believe. And that seems to be the case among so many people. I heard the story of an atheist in public, in a public forum. And he once challenged God in a public forum. He basically said, there is no God. It is a fiction. It is a fairy tale. It is not real. And in order to prove it, he said, I'm going to make God an offer to sacrifice myself, that if he is real and if he is true, then he can kill me and he can kill me, he can strike me dead in the next 30 seconds. I defy God, there is no God, and if there is, kill me in the next 30 seconds. And they started counting down, 10 seconds, nine seconds. You can imagine the crowd is looking at him, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. They're wondering, is God gonna take him up on his challenge? And of course, the time passes, and he says, see, I told you so. There's no God. He's not real. A wise man patted the man on the shoulder and said, God's not going to destroy you in order to satisfy your curiosity. God certainly has the power to accept the challenge, but he's not going to act contrary to his nature or his plans. You see, the truth is, God won't create signs and miracles to satisfy curiosity, to make anger go away, or to satisfy skepticism. But there are those people who want that. Imagine, why do you want a miracle? So I can believe. Why do believers want a miracle? Because they already believe that a miraculous God can do the miraculous. The fact that the religious leaders called Jesus teacher reveals that they're liars and that they're hypocrites. They don't really believe, even for a minute, that Jesus can teach them anything. They're committed to their unbelief. Like so many of your friends. Like so many people in your family. They're not interested in believing So how does Jesus feel about people who require a miracle or as a sign, as a condition for faith? Look what it says in verse 39. But he answered them and said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. When Thomas persisted in his unbelief, even after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appeared to him and said, quote, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed in John 20, 29. Again, Jesus doesn't think that believing or that seeing is believing, but rather that believing is seeing. So when Jesus answers them and says an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, pause. Ask yourself the question, why are they evil? Because they're willfully blind to their own Messiah. They're willfully blind to their own Messiah. You see, Jesus doesn't mince word with the person who is willfully blind, who refuses the evidence, who refrains from examining the facts. Why are they called adulterous? Because they're spiritually unfaithful to a God who has revealed himself in every single generation of their existence. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek out after wisdom an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign simply because faith and belief aren't good enough but you know what the new testament says what it reveals that without faith it's impossible to please god and i'm not suggesting that 
it's an uninformed faith or it's an ill-informed faith. Because I believe that faith really is informed by the events that the Bible records concerning the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. People long for miracles. There is a desire for supernatural manifestations, not because their faith is strong, but because their faith is weak or non-existent. The religious leaders ask for a sign, but they don't really want one, do they? But let's just for purposes of discussion, say that you yourself have said, or that you yourself know someone who said, no, I really do want to see a sign. I really do want to believe I really do want proof. The religious leaders have already voiced their opposition. They've already expressed their hatred. They've already expressed their desire to kill Jesus. They've already accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Now I want you to think this through for just a moment. They've already said the signs that you've already demonstrated are proof positive, not that you know and love God, but it's proof positive that you're in league with the devil. So again, again, think about this for just a moment. Why would they ask for a sign? Jesus has told them that corrupt trees produce corrupt fruit. He's already called them a nest of vipers. That their evil words prove their evil hearts. If, if a person witnesses a miracle, does it change the condition of the human heart? It actually doesn't. The Bible seems to indicate the presence of miracles, the presence of signs, the presence of wonders can do one of two things. It can cause a person to respond in obedience and submission, but often in the, type, in the Bible, it, they respond in hardness of heart and they increase their opposition to the word of God and the plan of God. Do you remember when all of a sudden the miraculous signs started to appear in Egypt when Moses says, let my people go? Did the supernatural presence of signs go, hey, you're right. There's something weird and supernatural taking place here. And it's obvious to me that you're God's spokesperson. Bye. That's not what happened. They hardened their hearts. When God judged Egypt and Pharaoh with the natural and the supernatural plagues, they didn't repent. And the book's, Bible's final book, the book of Revelation, reveals that God is going to judge the world again in a series of catastrophic judgments. But will it change people's hearts? According to to the end of the book. Dorothy Sayers, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, wrote that people in her generation, and I'm quoting her, believe in nothing, care for nothing, seek to know nothing, interfere with nothing, enjoy nothing, hate nothing, find purpose in nothing, live for nothing, remain alive because there's nothing for which at this point they're willing to die, unquote. This is the generation that faced World War II. This was a growing age of skepticism and unbelief. Signs and miracles can never replace the word of God. The impact of the promises of God. Or the man of God or the woman of God who are willing to live their lives as if the gospel is true. But how many people do you know who seek after a sign? Millions of people will travel to various shrines and sites in the hopes of experiencing a miracle. Millions of people will travel to Fatima or Madrigoria, but lest we criticize our Catholic friends too much, are Protestants also guilty? Only if you've ever seen a Benny Hinn crusade on TV. People aren't immune to these miracle rallies and miracle crusades. 
Like miracle-seeking surfers, they, they travel from church to church and city to city. They're looking for the next supernatural wave. Jesus condemns the generation that seeks after a sign as being evil and adulterous. And few generations in the past have rivaled our own generation for seeking after a sign or for sky watching. There's a whole subculture in the United States and around the world that's constantly looking up. They're constantly looking up, but they're not looking for God and they're not looking for a message from God and they're not looking for the mercy of God and they're not looking for the gospel. They're looking up because they're looking for aliens. They'll spend literally hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars. They're looking to make contact. They're looking for a technologically advanced civilization who will make all of their dreams come true in the hopes that they will have the solution to the human condition because on the earth people still get sick and people still die. Even some scientists have suggested the possibility not only that there are aliens but that these aliens may not have good intentions. Stephen Hawking, who isn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, when asked about aliens, he said, what brings you to the conclusion that they would have anything other than malevolent, not benevolent, that means evil intentions towards you. Jesus condemned his generation for looking up but refusing to look at him. And I fear that unless we examine the claims of Jesus, we might simply join the evil generations that have preceded us. Jesus said, no sign, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. By the way, Jesus, we already know, has the power to perform any sign that he wishes. I've said it to you over and over again. If Jesus wants to turn them all into burnt tortillas, could he have done it? I think that that would be a fairly impressive miracle. He turns the Pharisees into tortillas and he turns the scribes into fajitas and he goes, dig in. But he doesn't do that. He's not going to perform a sign that's contrary to God's plan and God's nature or God's will. God feels no obligation to bend himself to conform to the evil character of human hearts who simply want to satisfy their heart of unbelief. But does that mean that we ne ignore, neglect, or, or not believe in miracles? I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying at all. His condemnation isn't for a person who prays that their loved one who is sick be healed. That's not the condemnation. The condemnation is for the person who refuses to believe the truth that God has to say apart from a supernatural revelation. Augsburger wrote, the presence of Jonah in Nineveh was God's sign to the Ninevites. The point that Jesus makes in part is that Jonah was God's man for the Ninevites and Jonah's message was God's message. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's even more than that. Yes, God sent Jonah. Yes, God sent Jonah with a message. But you'll remember that prior to him being sent and prior to the message, he's swallowed by a sea creature and he is for all intents and purposes dead. And he comes back to life. Jonah does, isn't just simply a person who's been sent by God with a message from God. He himself will impart, become the message. John Corson points out that in this section of, of scripture that Jonah preached judgment. Jesus preached grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jonah started out in disobedience to God's commands. Jesus comes in perfect obedience. Jesus pre or Jonah preaches to one city. Jesus, the whole world. Jonah hates the Ninevites. And you might wonder, well, why does he hate them? 
Well, because these Ninevites, who were part of the Assyrian Empire, would make forays into the northern part of the Galilee, and they would find Jews, and they would cut their heads off and leech the skin from their, from their skulls and build pyramids of skulls. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus loves you. Jonah is a Jew sent to Gentiles. Jesus is a Jew sent to the world. The queen of Sheba was a Gentile who was willing to listen to a Jewish king. And so look, the righteous king reveals a sign. Look what it says in verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign Jesus is willing to give is his own death and his own burial and his own resurrection as symbolized in the experience of Jonah. This is one of the reasons why I'm fairly certain that when Jonah was running away from God and he found himself on a ship bound for Tarshish and the waves started swelling and the storm came and threatened to sink the ship and they found out who Jonah was. They said, who are you? He goes, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew prophet. Sent by God. Well, what are you doing here? I'm running away from God's plans and purposes and God's will. How can we solve this problem that we face? You're going to have to throw me overboard and kill me. Now, by the way, when you get thrown overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean with no place to go, what are your chances of survival? There's zero. For all of you kids who ever watched any pirate movie and the guy goes, you're going to walk the plank. At the end of the plank was the depths of the sea. And a sea creature comes and swallows Jonah whole. And according to the narrative in the book of Jonah, he has a change of heart. By the way, this is one of the first references of Jesus, at least in the book of Matthew, where he speaks about his own death and his future resurrection. This is going to remain the theme of the gospel. In chapter 16, verse 21, death, burial, resurrection. Chapter 17, death, burial, resurrection. Chapter 20, death, burial, resurrection. Chapter 27, death, burial, resurrection. And so when he says, for as Jonas spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, this has caused no end of frustration for those who believe that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon and rose on a Sunday morning. They start doing the math. Well, look, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, this doesn't sound like three days and three nights, but then they do Thursday and they go, okay, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They're trying to figure out which is it. Did, did he really die on a Wednesday? Did he really die on a Thursday? Did he, did he really die on a Friday? Whatever the right answer is, all of the Gospels, without exception, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, record definitively that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. So they want to debate this passage. And I'm happy to talk about it and answer their questions. But there are other people who say, you don't really believe this, do you? This is nonsense. A man falls overboard. He's swallowed by a gigantic sea creature. There was one particular person who approached a pastor who says, this is nonsense. You don't really believe this, do you? And the pastor said, yeah, I do. He goes, how can you be sure? And the pastor said, look, when I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah. And the guy, the skeptic said, well, what if he's not there? And then the pastor said, then you, then you can ask him. Verse 40 is either a quotation by Jesus to the religious leaders or it is an ex 
explanation by Matthew to the reader. Scholars have debated that. Did Jesus really say this? Or is this an explanation that Matthew has given? Jesus believes that Jonah is a literal prophet swallowed by a literal sea creature. And again, some people find this hard to swallow. I know, sorry about that. But remember what the skeptic and the unbeliever are. They're reluctant to believe any miracle can happen. And this miracle is nothing compared to the invitation of a miracle inside of your own heart that you could yourself be changed, that you yourself could be cleansed, that you yourself could be forgiven. The religious leaders don't insist or demand or believe that Jesus will rise from the dead. Now think about it. They want him dead, but they don't believe he's going to rise from the dead. But Jesus will rise from the dead. And sadly, even this sign was rejected by most of the religious leaders and many of the Jews. Many of them did believe. I'm going to suggest to you most didn't. They didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to Jonah or the other prophets. Remember in Luke 16, 31, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus makes the statement that Lazarus dies and he goes to the place of the righteous dead and then the rich man goes to the place of the unrighteous dead and he has this rich man begging Father Abraham, send someone back, send someone back from the dead to warn my family and friends (coughs) that all this is true. And Abraham says, even if one comes back from the dead, they won't believe. What happens when a person's completely convinced that Jesus was something more than a superior teacher or an extraordinary human being? What happens when a person believes that Jesus was killed for sin and then resurrected from the dead? In these next few weeks, of course, we're going to discover that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. Without the resurrection, the believer has no hope for present forgiveness or future life. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, when he says, And if Christ be not risen, your faith is vain. He said, guess what? You're believing a joke, a lie, a fantasy, a delusion. Our belief in this great teaching isn't simply based on religious wish fulfillment or on the unfounded idea that something may or may not have happened in the past. We're not talking about an isolated rumor. We're talking about a historical fact that gives solid evidence to support the fact And that Jesus offers his death and resurrection as the conclusive and definitive proof of his message. In the early part of the past century, a group of lawyers met in England to discuss if enough evidence was available to make a case that could be won in an English court of whether or not Jesus really did rise from the dead. And when their study was completed, they published the findings of their investigation. They concluded Christ's resurrection from the dead was the most well-established fact of history. In his little book, Countdown, G.B. Hardy gave some thought-provoking questions about the resurrection. He writes, quote, There are but two essential requirements. Number one, has anyone cheated death and proved it? Number two, is it available to me? Here's the complete record. Confucius' tomb, occupied. Buddha's tomb, occupied. 
He's not exactly correct. There is one little smattering of Buddha's body left. It's a tooth. It happens to be in Sri Lanka or on the island of Ceylon. I know because I've seen it. I went to the shrine where literally tens of thousands of people show up to worship at the, at the, the tooth of the Buddha. Muhammad's tomb occupied. Jesus' tomb empty. Hardy writes, argue as you will. There's no point in following a loser, unquote. The resurrection of Jesus is a reality. Countless lives testify to this fact, not fable. There was a four-year-old son who was, his father was an undertaker and he was surrounded by the death industry. He visited his father at the mortuary on, on regular occasions. And on Easter morning, he heard a, the teacher say that Jesus rose from the dead. And this four-year-old says, do you mean that Jesus really rose from the dead? Oh, yes, the teacher said. The little boy shook his head. He said, I know my daddy didn't take care of him after he died. If he had, he would never have gotten up. It's funny. But the truth is, no, he would have gotten up. No undertaker's art could hold him. No skeptic's unbelief could keep him. The religious leader's skepticism couldn't stop him. Satan's optimism couldn't prevent the resurrection. And even the disciples' fear and unbelief couldn't keep the sign from happening. Jesus rose from the dead. But here's the most amazing thing. Not simply that he rose from the dead, but he promises he'll raise you from the dead. In John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And look what it says in verse 41 and 42. The Lord replies, he's the sign. In verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, this wicked, recalcitrant, evil group of people turned from their sin when they heard not the message of love, but the message of judgment. The Ninevites recognized in Jonah something supernatural, something incredible, something happened. There was something that, that caused all of them to repent. Jonah was the sign to the Ninevites. Jesus is the sign to Israel in the world. Jonah didn't want to preach the message of repentance. He would have been quite content that all of them, all of them, all of them experienced the judgment of God. Not only were they Gentiles, they were idolaters. They were wicked. They were ruthless. They were members of a group of people, like I said, who hated the Jews and practiced exquisite tortures. It was the Assyrians who invented crucifixion. They were the first people in the world to take a person and nail them to a piece of wood. The Assyrians invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected crucifixion. Asking Jonah to preach to the Assyrians would have been like asking Martin Luther King Jr. to preach at a KKK rally. Warning them of judgment if they fail to repent of their hatred and their prejudice. It would have been like asking a Jew to go to a Nazi rally and say, you know, you guys, you need to turn from your sin. All of this stuff that you're doing, it's totally wrong. But Jonah did go, and the people did listen. And that's the point that Jesus is making when he says that there's one here greater than Jonah. The expectation is they heard from Jonah and believed Jonah. 
And someone greater than Jonah is. If they were willing to hear his message, how could you not be willing to experience my message? In Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. It says that he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. In that culture, in that society, covering yourself in sackcloth and ashes is an oriental way of expressing extreme sorrow. They sincerely turned. They sincerely repented. And God spared them for a few more generations. They had no knowledge of the true God. I want you to think about this. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't grow up in a Christian culture. They didn't grow up where people love God, believe the Bible, and do God stuff. That's not the world in which they lived. The prophet despised the Ninevites. But he was compelled to deliver God's message. Jesus loves the religious leaders and the Jewish people. And even at this very moment, was still crying out to them. In verse 42, it says, the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. By the way, the Lord is making reference to a visit by the queen of Sheba, or Sabia, to Solomon. This was an area that was located at the southernmost tip of what's now Saudi Arabia. The queen was able to recognize the wisdom of God in Solomon, David's son. The story is found in 1 Kings chapter chapter 10. The queen of Sheba journeys. She shows up. She sees the magnificent temple. She witnesses the king's administrative skills. She hears for herself his godly wisdom. She goes away saying, if even half of what was said can't be compared to the glory of this person's kingdom. In all of human history, very few people approach Solomon's wisdom and wealth. Solomon has wisdom from God. But according to the Bible, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Solomon is a great king. Jesus is the king of kings. The queen of Sheba travels a great distance to be able to hear the wisdom of God. But the Jewish leaders refuse the, the, the person who is the wisdom of God, who's right in front of them. They don't have to make an extraordinary journey. He's right in front of them. The great privilege and opportunity reminds us that the greater the privilege and the greater the opportunity, the greater the judgment. And so Jesus connects the dots. You see, Solomon lived about a thousand years before Christ. The Ninevites repented of their sin some 700 years before Christ. Then Jesus makes the connection. He connects Solomon and Jonah and the queen of Sheba himself. And the greater the privilege, the greater the opportunity. Again, think of the opportunity. Think of the privilege. Think of the wealth that you've experienced in your life. You've got many of you to grow up with the Bible, believe the Bible, experience the Bible. Israel had a track record. They rejected their deliverer the first time and usually accepted them the second time. It was true of Joseph. It was true of Moses. It was true of David. And according to the Bible, it will be true of Jesus. Our culture, our society has adopted the outlook of Socrates and not Solomon. And the result is that sin... And their worldview is a result of ignorance. And Hegel, that man is evolving through increasing knowledge and technology to superior moral levels. We live in a culture that genuinely believes that science is the solution and that they offer the miracles to increase life. 
that science can give you a new face and a new heart and a new future. Francis Schaeffer wrote, quote, Christianity believes that God has created an external world that is really there. And because he's a reasonable God, one can expect to be able to find the order of the universe by reason, unquote. Christians aren't unreasonable. Reason doesn't insist that we abandon faith or ignore evidence. We affirm the testimony of the Bible about Jesus. But the real challenge isn't to just simply say with our mouth, I believe that it's true. It's to believe with your life and live your life as if that's true. You know, years and years ago, Chuck Colson wrote, But the most frightening fact of our world is that the church of Jesus Christ is in almost as much trouble as the culture. Unthinkingly, we have almost completely bought into the counterfeit secular value system. In fact, we can one-up it since God is on our side. Unfortunately, this skewed gospel and cheap grace are what prevent the church from making it a real impact for Christ. Many Christians attribute our impotence to the fact that we're overrun by a culture, victimized by the media, that the reason we can't get our message across to the secular world is because we're thwarted by those who control the all-powerful tube. (coughs) He wrote this prior to the internet, by the way. He writes, there's a lot of truth to this, but there's another side. He says, when I was with the president of one of the television networks, I chided him for not putting on more wholesome family programming on primetime TV. And since Gallup polls show that one third of all Americans claim to be born again, I told him he was missing a good market by not airing shows with Christian values. Oh, he replied, you mean like Chariots of Fire? Yeah, I explained, I've seen that movie 10 times. I think it's one of the most powerful penetrations of the gospel into the arts and the generation. Well, The executive said, CBS ran Chariots of Fire on Sunday Night Movie some months ago. That same night, NBC had Golden Pond. ABC had My Mother's Secret Life, a soap opera about a mother who was hiding her past as a prostitute. Let me tell you the ratings. On Golden Pond, number one with 25.2%. My Mother's Secret Life as a prostitute, 25.1%. Way, way, way in the distance, number three. Chariots of Fire with 11%. He said, of the 65 shows rated that week, Dallas was number one. Chariots of Fire was number 57. He said, where are the 50 million Christians you're talking about? How is it possible that we have the number one murder rate in Christian United States of America and secular Japan has the lowest murder rate in the world. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks of a terminal generation, a final generation, a group of people who will be the last group to show up. In Matthew 24, 29, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Oddly enough, Jesus says that the final generation will be given the sign that the scribes and the Pharisees longed for. There will be a final generation that will look up and the celestial happenings will be so overwhelming that that generation will realize I'm living at the very closing moments of human history. And Jesus says, then the sign of the Son of Man will be given in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus intimates that another sign is coming. For this generation, it was a death. It was a burial. It was a resurrection. But Jesus invites us to believe that a future generation will see a final sign 
that will include not only that the whole universe itself will now begin to bend to the will of the Father, but that Jesus himself will show up. But I gotta stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just like so long ago, someone might say, that's nonsense. Do you really believe that? A crucified Jew? Buried over 2,000 years ago? Will come back to life and come back to earth? And Heavenly Father, we have every reason to believe that that's exactly what's going to happen. We have every reason to believe that every single promise made will become every single promise kept. We have every reason to believe that when Jesus said that the generation of Solomon and the generation of Jonah, Lord, would unite together in a final attestation, confirmation of the truth. Heavenly Father, we've already seen that Jesus is claimed to be greater than the temple and now greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. That this great Jesus is the one who can solve the problems that we face and the most pernicious problem of all, the problem of sin. Lord, we pray that our unbelieving family and friends would invite Jesus into their heart and believe the truth that he rose from the dead and that he's coming again. We commit these things to you, Lord. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't ignore the message, that we would embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. You